Has Jesus changed everything for you? You'll see on our website where you're watching this live stream, there is a sermon outline. You'll see that there's everything you need actually on that site there, reformingchurch.org slash live stream. And the first question we're asking this morning is, has Jesus changed everything for you? Um, I want to ask you also to go back in time a little bit and I want to ask you about where were you, what were you doing on December 31st, 2019? Just think back, uh, December 20, sorry, December 31st, 2019. Do you remember that day, December 21st, December 31st? <laughs> I'm having trouble with the date, aren't I? It was New Year's Eve 2019. Do you remember what you were doing that day? I mean, being New Year's Eve, you can probably have some kind of um, memory connection, can't you? We can think, yeah, perhaps I can remember what I was doing that day, like the 28th or the 21st or whatever other day in December of 2019. Might be a bit tricky, Christmas Day, but you probably can remember. What were you doing? New Year's Eve 2019. You might have been getting ready for New Year's Eve. You might have been getting hot coffee in the morning with friends and cold drinks in the evening with family. You might have been doing all sorts of things. Um, perhaps you didn't have a worry in the world. Or perhaps you did have worries in the world. How things have changed now with life in lockdown. Was December 31st, 2019 a memorable day for you? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, life was life. Perhaps it was healthy for you, perhaps it was hard. Uh, New Year's perhaps didn't change much for you, perhaps it changed a little bit each year. It was a day, though, that comes in history as a memorable day because it was a day where a name was given. It's a combo name, and the name is COVID-19. December 31st, 2019 was the day they announced, they gave a name to a thing that has changed our lives. The word CO of COVID, CO means corona. VI stands for virus, D disease, 19, because that was the year that it started. December 31st, 2019 was the day the WHO announced, not the band, but the medical organisation, they announced COVID-19 was this thing that we'd heard about. It was this thing that was happening over there somewhere. And perhaps on that day, December 31st, 2019, perhaps you and I didn't think it would change our lives very much. We heard it was over there, it was happening. Yeah, there's been sort of sicknesses, respiratory problems um, all around the world at different times. It was perhaps some sort of thing that was happening over there. It wouldn't change our lives. It wouldn't change my life. And yet, Regardless what we believe about it, it has changed our lives. That announcement, December 31st, 2019, has changed all our lives all around the world and we find ourselves now in lockdown five. A lot has changed. Welcome again to Reforming Online because a lot has changed. Reforming Online, of course, is a shadow of what we could be as Reforming Church. A gathered together in person group, the word church, ecclesia from the New Testament Greek word means gathered, that's who we are, but we can't be because of our lives being changed all around the world and even here in Bendigo. Much has changed and often that can be concerning, particularly when it's big changes, people being apart, having to relate from a distance. 
all that can bring great concern for us. This is also the context of why this letter in the Bible was written from 1 Thessalonians. We see this is this kind of context. Not because of lockdown, but because Paul and his fellow leaders had to leave Thessalonica. They had to be apart, distant from this newly planted church because of persecution. We heard from Acts 17 when Ryan read, sorry, from where, um, yeah, Ryan read Acts 17. We heard what happened when Paul and his team of Silas and others, uh, they were on their second missionary journey. They'd just been to the assembly of elders in Jerusalem. Then they'd traveled up and west and they went through Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia to Thessalonica. And Paul's method was to go into the synagogue and he was to preach the gospel. That's what he did. He was reasoning from the scriptures in the synagogue at Thessalonica. But he only gets three weeks in, three weekends of preaching. And trouble comes. And that trouble we saw in Acts 17, we actually preached from Acts 17 last year in October in 2020. And um, we saw that trouble comes It comes because there are Jews and Gentiles who are believing in Jesus and there's a local church that's planted and it's gathered and yet that sees people get jealous and angry. Their idols are being challenged, their their hopes and their ambitions and power is being challenged and they bring upon Paul and Silas intense opposition that Paul and Silas have to flee. The accusation is in Acts 17, these men are turning the world upside down as they preach Christ. So Paul and Silas are forced to leave. It's painful because they love the Thessalonian church and it was hard to be away from everybody. Does this feel familiar to you? This is lockdown five, isn't it? It's painful, isn't it, to be apart You know the feeling, I know the feeling. It's painful when you don't hear from people, when you you want to reach out. It's painful when that's hard. And We have phone calls and, and text messages and emails. We can do all those things and yet it's still hard. Imagine then for Paul and Silas and his ministry team who don't have phone calls and text messages and emails. They've got letters. They've got letters, and so Paul feels the loss of not being able to be with this newly planted church at Thessalonica. He was only there for about a month, but he loves them so much, he feels the loss of being away from people he loves, and so he sends Timothy. He sends Timothy to find out how are they going in Thessalonica. And so we see that this letter that we have that will be in for a little while is a letter of Paul's response to what he hears. Paul writes this first letter to the Thessalonians. It's about a year later, Paul is in Athens, he sends Timothy, Timothy comes back, Timothy actually ends up meeting with Paul in um, in Corinth, and we find all about this actually in 1 Thessalonians. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse uh, 1 and 2, we see about this whole how Paul couldn't get there, so he sends Timothy. And we see this is actually a beautiful picture of plurality of elders in the church, isn't it? A plurality of people looking after people. It doesn't depend upon one person, but a plurality of people, one anothering people, of looking out for people, calling, messaging, emailing, writing letters, sending, seeing, going, and seeing how the church is in this time of being apart. And when Timothy comes back to Paul, he comes back with a very encouraging report. The Thessalonian church is going well in the Lord. 
And there are some challenges and problems, of course, they face. Isn't that the case with every healthy church? But he sends this report back. They're going well on the Lord. And so Paul then writes this letter. It's one of his earliest letters in the New Testament. Of 27 books in the New Testament, 13, about a quarter written by Paul. And, and this is one of his earliest. And as he writes this, we see it's got two main parts. Now, chapters 1 to 3, uh, Paul celebrates, he gives thanks for how they're going in Christ, how Jesus has changed everything for them. And then chapters 4 to 5, he then shows how Jesus continues to reform us, that we're always reforming, ready for the return of Christ, which is the theme title we've given this series, Ready for the Return of Christ. And between these two halves, there's a prayer in the center. In fact, there's three prayers. There's one at the beginning, there's one in the center, and there's one at the end. And these three prayers with these two halves are the shape of this letter for being ready for the return of Christ. This encouragement to be reforming in our church culture, ready for the return of Christ, even if we are far apart, like Paul was, from, from the Thessalonians. As we read this, it's interesting actually to see how the return of Christ features so much in the letter. Uh, versification, that is when verses were put into the Bible, you know, the big numbers, the chapters, the small numbers of verses, that wasn't Paul doing it. When Paul wrote letters, he didn't go, one, I'm going to write this, and then two, I'm going to write this. He didn't, that's not how he did it. That versification, what it's known as, didn't come in until the Reformation. What's interesting is whoever put the verses in 1 Thessalonians, they did so so they made sure that every section had the return of Christ mentioned. So whether it happens so often the return of Christ is part of this letter, every section's got it, which is why as you go through you'll notice, sometimes you'll wonder as you study this letter, why is the chapter break there? It seems a bit odd, for example, to have chapter 3 verse 1 there. Well, the reason is every section has the return of Christ in it. We're going to actually enjoy, I think, being in this letter for some time. We're going to go deep into this letter. We're going to be hearing it preached as Christ is preached from First Thessalonians. We're going to be studying this book in our small groups when we can regather soon, we pray. We're going to be in our daily devotionals. We're going to be really living in the letter to the Thessalonians. And this is going to actually bear fruit in our lives I reckon. This is going to bear fruit in our lives, I trust, in lockdown life as you listen to God's word in Christ from 1 Thessalonians. Well, we see when Paul and Silas first preach Christ to the Thessalonians, they get accused of turning the world upside down. It was like a pandemic of preaching. Christ has just spread. Christ is Lord. It's literally changing the world. And because the gospel does that, it's a message of Jesus changing the world. It's a message of Jesus changing everything. This sees the Thessalonian church culture, and I pray it'll see reforming church culture, reforming, always reforming, as the gospel is preached, as we're hearing it. This is the motto of reforming church. If you go on our website, you'll see on the front page, the motto of our church, the reason we are called reforming church is because Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Um, there was a motto in the Reformation period of church history. Uh, the motto goes like this, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. And what that means is, excuse my Latin, what that means is um, the church reforming is always reforming. Right? So the church reformed is always reforming. 
It describes how we as a church don't need to keep changing everything for the sake of change, but rather our hearts are always being changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always reforming by the gospel of grace. We are often wrong, we are always weak, and we need to be always reforming in our hearts by hearing the gospel of grace preached to our hearts. This is the testimony of Christians who have loved Jesus throughout the centuries. And so this is the question I'd like to ask you this morning with that context and that background. I'd like to ask you this. Has Jesus changed everything for you? Has Jesus changed everything for you? Friends, if a pandemic of COVID-19 can change the world a bit, and if it's a bad bit of change, let's be honest, now compare that change to how Jesus could change the world, how Jesus could change everything around the world in Thessalonica, in Bendigo, in you. I pray that Jesus would turn our world upside down. I pray that Jesus would bring new life for you even in lockdown. I pray that you would see today how Jesus changes everything for you in three ways. We see this in this first chapter to Thessalonians. We see three things. One, we see Christ comes into your life with power. And secondly, Christ disciples our life with joy. And thirdly, Christ turns us to real life in God. For Jesus to change everything in your life, he has to come into your life with power. Let's look at verse 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. I do hope you've got a Bible in front of you. You're going to need it. You need a Bible. Verse 2, Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. The thankfulness of Paul to God here, he expresses, is so helpful for us, it's diagnostic for us, especially in frustrating times. We all get frustrated, don't we? I get frustrated. When plans are put off, we feel the loss of another lockdown, we feel the effects of sin from others. Moreover, my own sin, we get frustrated. What's the solution to frustration? Grumbling about it, grumbling more and more, building upon it, sharing our frustrations with others, does that help? It, it actually does it. <laughs> no, the, the antidote to frustration is gratitude. The Apostle Paul was frustrated. He was frustrated by what happened at Thessalonica. He was there for three weekends of preaching, about a month, and then had to leave. He was frustrated. He was then frustrated because he didn't know what was going on. He wasn't going to know sure how they were going. And so he's frustrated. But when he sees, when he focuses on what God is doing and how God is changing the Thessalonians, he's thankful. Friend, what are you thankful for? You know what you're frustrated by. Everyone sees up front and center. They, they constantly, you and I constantly see what we're frustrated by because we constantly remind ourselves, don't we? We walk around the house grumbling in our hearts what we're frustrated by or who we're frustrated by. But can I ask you this? Pause. 
Stop. Breathe. Pray. What are you frustrated by? Now, what can you be thankful for? Namely, who can you be thankful for? How does Jesus change everything for you today? And if it's hard to see what you can be thankful for, read verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of others. Think of our church friends. We've been going through lockdown together in this way over a couple of years now in different seasons. But think of this. Paul thinks of the Thessalonians. You know what he does? He remembers. He remembers in his prayers their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. It's interesting the phrase he uses here is repeated in chapter 5, uh, verse 8. It's repeated there. It's repeated that this same threefold phrase, Paul uses threefold phrases throughout his writings. And here is an it's important one. It's actually quite much of a pattern for for the Christian life. Think about this. This is the pattern for the Christian life. The Christian is someone who, firstly, lives out a work of faith. Faith in Christ, what he's done in the past, shapes our work. So we, it's a work of faith. We then that then changes us to have a labour of love for others. So faith in Christ, with a love for others, and then our eyes set on a steadfast hope in the future. It's faith in Christ in the past a love for others now, and a hope in the future. This is the threefold pattern of the Christian life. And when Paul hears about this pattern that's evident in their life, he is overwhelmingly thankful. We would too be thankful, yes? Lockdowns are hard for many reasons, aren't they? I think one of the reasons they're hard is sometimes when you haven't heard from somebody, you get that sinking feeling. You know, you're such good friends with someone. You get that sinking feeling. You haven't heard from them and they go silent. And there's radio silence and you have this feeling of maybe something's not right. They're not okay. Perhaps they're not okay with us. They're not okay with me. And so you feel it. And so you're trying to reach out. And have you ever had that feeling? This is what Paul feels. He feels this feeling of distance they say love makes, uh, sorry, distance makes uh, love go stronger, and sometimes it doesn't, and Paul is worried about that. But we discover something in the opening words of 1 Thessalonians when you see not just how they're going by their own pattern, but the reason why they're going well. And here's where Paul really celebrates it's in verse 4. In verse 4, there's a conjunction, there's a connecting word. It's wonderful how we discover things in the text, isn't it? In, in verse 4, we see this. This is the reason, this is the real depths of gratitude that Paul has. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because, your go- because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul is celebrating the power of God at work in the lives of the Thessalonians. The brothers and sisters of Thessalonica are loved by God. And the good news of God has come to them, not just in words, but in power. Yes, the gospel is words. Yes, the gospel is words. It's that, like that old saying, you know, people say things. It's, uh, this saying is so, you know, it's so vacuous, right? People say, 
on it. You don't need to use words for the gospel. You just got to kind of act out your life. And there's the old saying attributed to well, St. Francis of Assisi, whether he said it or not. But you know the saying, you perhaps heard it before. Um, uh, you know, uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. You've heard that saying? It's such a vacuous statement. You know why? It's like saying, feed the poor, use food if necessary. I guess it's, that doesn't make sense. The gospel is words. You can't like, use words if necessary. It is words. The word gospel means message. And so we do want to feed the poor and use food because it is necessary. And we do want to preach the gospel and use words because it is absolutely necessary. The gospel comes in words. And notice this. Those gospel words are power. Romans 1.16, of course. Romans 1.16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile or the Greek. The gospel is power. Those words, Paul says, they came in power. And how does that come in power? Because God comes to them, verse 4. God chooses them. God brings the gospel to them to save them. Like rain came for Mr. Duck in the children's talk. And if you're just tuning in, you need to go back and watch that children's talk to understand the context of that. Mr. Duck is not a person, he's a puppet. Like rain came for Mr. Duck, God comes to us. We avoid God. We don't choose God naturally. We don't choose to go and enjoy him. He chooses us. He comes to us in power. The power of the gospel. The Bible speaks through 66 books of God's love and the way he works in saving us. Deuteronomy 6, 7, sorry, Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. It's a famous one. Easy to remember, isn't it? Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, we read this. It's not because you're more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it's because the Lord loves you. Notice this. This is what God is saying to Israel in Deuteronomy 7, way back then. It's not because you found God. It's not because, you know, God was lost. We're the ones that are lost. We don't find him. He finds us. He comes to us in power when we were sinners, when we were weak. People often love to get into arguments about how God saves, about how God chooses and all that sort of thing. They love to get into arguments when instead we could be getting into gratefulness. And should this choice and love of God lead us to be proud? No, it ought to leave us humble. Not arrogant, but amazed at God's grace. It's not a cause for controversy, but for comfort. I don't like it when people turn God's choosing love into some form of debate for fun. It's not to be content for debate it's to be something that should level us, humble us, and cause us to praise. God has come to us. Christians are those who are saved by hearing the word alone as the word comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who breathes these words onto the page. It's the Holy Spirit who then takes these words as you read the Bible, the words that he has breathed, and he illuminates your mind, he renews your mind, changes your mind about God, and then he moves deep into your heart to the very 
place where you believe and love things and hold them closely. And he rearranges it and turns your world and my world upside down. The gospel comes in power. The Holy Spirit opens blind eyes. He takes people dead in our sins and speaks his word to our hearts. And he functionally says, light it up. God created the world. How, friends? How did he do it? Through his word. And how is he recreating, regenerating, renewing his world, people? Through his word. The word of Christ that comes in power. A Christian is someone who doesn't just agree with the gospel. We don't just discuss the gospel. A Christian is someone who in full conviction says, I need the gospel. A Christian is a changed person walking. We have been loved by God, saved and sanctified, rescued and set apart for his own. Christ comes with such power that he changes everything and nothing can be the same again. Can I ask you this? Is that your experience? Is it mine? I know when I'm not tracking well in faith, right? In in faith in Christ's work. When I'm not loving others well. When I've seem to have lost my hope in the steadfastness of Christ's return. When that's happening in my life, do you know I diagnostically know what's going on? It's because I haven't been hearing the gospel. Because I haven't been getting along to gather with God's people and have them speak the gospel to me and me speak it to them, to speak it to one another, to preach it to each other's hearts, to believe it. You know what? When people are tracking away from God, it's because they're tracking away from hearing the gospel preached. Where else are you going to get that power, friends? And this changed life is one that you and I need. It's one that's modelled, actually, to the Thessalonians. We see, secondly, the gospel is how Christ disciples our life for joy. Look at verse 6. Verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. See, part of Paul's pain was that he could only spend a month in Thessalonica and part of Paul's pattern was to plant a new church, have new believers, see them then grown by the regular preaching of the gospel uh, week in, week out on weekends, in small groups during the week and daily devotionals, sharing his life with them. That's what discipleship is all about. The word disciple means learner. And so uh, people, as they come to Christ and are converted in Christ, need to learn from Christ. And how do they learn? They hear his word and they see it modelled in the lives of those who are speaking his word. Discipleship happens fruitfully when people can meet together with God's word. And Paul here speaks about that as imitation. It's a deeper, more profound thing than when our world thinks. See, our world thinks imitation is being like an influencer. Um, an influencer is different to being an imitator because being an influencer is all about me. If I'm an influencer, I'm the one that's important. But an imitator is always someone that says, actually, I'm just imitating someone else. Um, I'm imitating Christ, so imitate me as I imitate Christ because it's not about me, it's about Christ. You see the difference? 
Being an imitator has power that comes from imitating Christ. And it led the church at Thessalonica to be a bunch of example Christians around their region, around their patrol ministry of their presbytery. And look what they're discipling them in, in verse 6. Do you see what they're discipling them in? The joy of the Holy Spirit. Notice the power of this joy is different than the way the world sees joy or happiness. So the world sees joy, and sadly, sometimes even for the Christian church, we think joy is something I've got to put on, put on in the morning, conjure it up. You know, so I might go through my week, like uh, with all sorts of hazards and and problems. Um, but if, if it's Sunday, I've got to look joyful, man. And so we come along, and, and perhaps we try and get the buzz from the music, or we get the buzz from somewhere else. We look for joy in places that are temporary. We look for joy in the wrong places. And as we look for this joy, we think it's just me being a, a smiley person. And we look at a smiley joy, but I want to be like that. I want to imitate that. It's hard. Let me tell you, we all have different personalities. If you are not a smiley person, don't try and be someone else. Don't try and be a smiley person. That won't work beyond Wednesday. There's no power in that. No, the joy that Paul speaks of is a deeper joy. It's a spiritual joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a joy you can have even in sorrow. It's a joy you can have even in lockdown. Uh, the Presbyterian Church, one of the things I love about us is we've got a history of theology, a history of loving God deeply, studying Him, loving Him, knowing Him, enjoying Him, glorifying in Him. And I didn't grow up with it, but there's this thing called the shorter catechism. The word catechism means to teach, the shorter way to teach kids, but also adults, grown-ups. Shorter catechism is the only question anyone ever remembers. <laughs> but that question, of course, is what is the chief purpose of humanity? Do you know what it is? Shorter catechism says the chief purpose of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is, to enjoy God is our purpose. Now, I've said this before about joy in God. I've said this before, so much so that um, uh, there's a brother in our church, we won't name names, especially on Reforming Online, but there's a brother in our church who reminds me that of this day this happened, it kind of came out, I kind of accidentally preached. Sometimes I accidentally preach. It's just what preachers do, they accidentally preach. Um, it's like, I don't know, footy players accidentally throw a football. And then the game starts. Well, we were, we were somewhere, we were watching a footy game actually. A few of us from a church, from Reforming, were watching a footy game in a lounge room. And, um, and it just came out that I noticed this. I noticed it uh, perhaps sometimes could happen in our church. Perhaps it could happen in me a lot. It happens, I think, amongst Christians, particularly in the Western world, is we can go through a gathering of church, of gathered worship, and we can express some joy... But then that same day, we had this surprising ability to watch a football game and really lift the roof. We'll jump off the seat, we'll celebrate, we'll fist pump, we'll go, yeah! When it comes to football or rugby or whatever your sport is, even the Olympics, when it comes to Jesus, we're a little bit more reserved. Now this is not that this should be like this. But rather, I'm just asking where does our joy come from? It doesn't come from a conjuring it up 
Look, here is my prayer for us. That we would not be known for how impressive we are. We'd not be known that we're just smiley people. But that we are people, even whatever is affecting us, even in sorrow, we have a deep and abiding joy. A joy in Jesus. Enabled by the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't it be good if people would know us as those who have that joy, that they would ask us, I see what's happening in your life. You're going through a hard time too, but where do you get this joy? You're not always smiling, but I notice that you've got this abiding steadfastness of hope, labour of love, work of faith. You've got this joy. Where do you get it? And then we say, well, let me tell you about Jesus. Because Jesus does change everything. And we see thirdly, it's Jesus Christ who turns us to real life in God. Verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. These are powerful words, friends. They speak of powerful change, don't they? These two little verses speak of powerful change in verses 9 to 10. Many scholars think that verses 9 to 10 is actually creedal in form. Uh, we in Reforming Church, we're a Presbyterian church, we, we have creeds, they help us, they're actually very helpful and I grew up in a church tradition that says, ah, we don't do creeds. Well, actually, the Bible is full of creeds. When Paul wrote this letter, they didn't have a New Testament. The church was being planted in all sorts of places. They had no New Testament. The Gospels were actually written after many of the New Testament letters. So what is the New Testament church going to do? What do they have? They've got the Old Testament scriptures. They've got the Bible in that form. But what are they going to do? They're going to remind each other of how Christ is Savior. He's Lord. And often they did that with oral, with creeds, spoken. And these creeds would then became part of the New Testament. And if you look at verses 9 and 10, it does read like a creed. We're going to, over when we gather again, start incorporating some New Testament creeds into our gathered worship, into our Lord's Supper. We have the Apostles' Creed. We have other creeds that we use, but wouldn't it be good to have some New Testament creeds? Imagine this, the church gathering and, and saying, Friends, how does Jesus change everything? And then we say together, look, there's only five here at the moment. We're not going to ask them to say, but we'd say it together. We believe, verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us in the wrath to come. What a wonderful creed. What powerful words. And here is where Paul has deep gratitude. Because it's reported to him, this is what's happened at the church at Thessalonica. Now remember, Paul, as an apostle and church planner, gets all sorts of reports. He's got people sent and getting messages. They don't have phone calls and text messages and emails, they've got letters and so he sends people and they send letters and he gets all sorts of reports. One of the ones he gets that would make his heart sink is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 11 we read that it's actually Chloe, 
we read, For it's been reported to me that Chloe's people, Chloe's household, are saying there's quarreling among the church at Corinth. You imagine Paul getting that. He gets, you know, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. He gets this report. Chloe's saying, Chloe's household report that there is division in the church. His heart would sink. Paul gets all sorts of reports. So when he gets the report from the Thessalonians, did you hear this? It's being said in coffee shops. It's being said in pubs. Hey, my mate in Macedonia said, oh, a guy in Achaia told me, the Thessalonians have turned to God from idols. That's a report that would light up your prayers with thankfulness. Paul is so grateful And not only that, we hear that they're ready for the return of Christ. They're waiting. Waiting for Christ's return can be hard, friends. But by his grace, he's giving us good training and practice in lockdowns. He's giving us good practice in waiting, isn't he? Come, Lord Jesus, come. But here is a powerful testimony of the gospel at work. A testimony that describes people who turn to God from idols. And notice this, it's not, the language is not, they turn from idols to God. Now it's choice words, it's chosen words. Ephesians 2 verse 1, what was the spiritual state of you and I before Christ came to us in power? Ephesians 2 verse 1, I'll tell you, in summary, we were dead. Dead in their trespasses and sins. And the last time I checked, dead people can do what? Nothing. Dead people can do nothing. And since that was our spiritual pulse, flatlining, we could not give ourselves a spiritual heart start. We could not, by any power that we have, move from idols. We clutch them too closely. The only way that I can move from my idols that I hold so close to my heart is the power of God comes to me first, that I turn to God first, then I can turn from idols. That's what the Puritan Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. I can only get rid of the things I love that I ought not love, those idols, if I love something bigger and better, and that's God. It wouldn't happen the other way around. It couldn't happen. We haven't got the power to make it happen, to make such a turn in life. Only Jesus Christ does. And friends, we need it. We need him. We need such life-giving repentance just like the Thessalonians needed it. And what I find fascinating here is it wasn't just Gentiles. We assume either Gentiles, they've got all the idols. There were Jews at Thessalonica that turned to God from idols. Hang on a minute, religious people can have idols? Yes, religious people can have idols. You and I can have idols. Repentance is not a once-off, occasional thing we do. It's a daily delight. It's liberating to repent from idols. An idol can be anything in your life that you have such affection for, you live for it, you worship it. Here is a diagnosis to, to wonder if you've got an idol in your life. Here's a diagnostic test. Here it is. Is there anything you can think of that if you were to lose it, you would lose meaning in life? Oh, there's things that you could lose that you'd be very sad, you would grieve. But I'm asking you, if you lost that thing, you'd lose all meaning in life. 
What is it? Whatever it was, that is the thing that gives you hope. That is the thing that has become so important to you that perhaps has become more important than God himself. And if you lost that thing and you perhaps on face value got through that loss, do you have no joy now? Do you have bitterness instead? This is why we actually worry so much. It's why we have fears because we turn things in this life into idols and humans have always done this. We turn good things into God things, which makes them very bad for us, by the way, for nothing can replace God. An idol can be anything we fashion for such a purpose. We do it all the time. What do you love more than God? It could be a relationship. A relationship is more important to you, how this works out, than God. It could be sex. It could be fame, glory, pride, success being seen. It could be a career that just consumes you. It could be a need to be liked. It could be a need to have something you think will give you happiness. It could be you wish to just control your life. I want to control my life, decide my destiny, live my own way. But without the power of Christ, we would not turn from any of those things. We saw idolatry played out in Psalm 135, in our call to worship. If you look in the Old Testament, you look at Isaiah 44, 45, 46, you see idolatry. Do you notice how idolatry always starts and then see how it's going now? See, idolatry always starts, for example, in Isaiah 46. They make idols, they think it's going to make them happy. And you know what they do in Isaiah 46? We actually go and read there. In Isaiah 46, idolatry always starts with this sense of, this is going to be good for me. And then we read this, Isaiah 46. Verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver and scales, that hire a goldsmith, he makes it into a god, they fall down and worship, they lift it to their shoulders, they carry it, they set it in its place and it stands there, it cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Notice this, we always start with our idols thinking, this is going to make me happy. And then you know what we're going to do? Notice this, we have to carry it around. Our idols, we have to carry them around. Our idols, we think, will fulfill our dreams. This will make me happy. This will give me joy. When actually, it becomes a burden because I've got to carry the thing around. And it sends us into a hell of sadness and sucks our life away and sends us away from God and eternal life in Him. Idolatry is a life of being busy finding something else to rescue us from the wrath to come. And whatever you think gives you that salvation, that joy of happiness, you'll serve that thing. It will be your master. It will become your burden. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Once you recognize and you see God comes for you out of love, you see Christ you see that those idols, in fact, nothing else, died for your sin and rose for your hope. Nothing else rescues us in the wrath to come but Jesus. Why is there wrath to come? 
We deserve to be cut off from God because we spend our busy lives choosing to live for anything else but him. Yet God breaks into our burden and brokenness and he comes to love us. God himself comes to us in power, in his word, to you today. God comes in power. Christ comes to rescue you. And he rescues you by shouldering the burden of sin on himself at the cross by dying a deserved death. What a burden of enslavement it is to love anything else other than Christ. What a sad way to live, to love anything else but the one who first loved you. And the only power to change that is the power of the gospel of Christ. And this is why in our lives of lockdown and for our church life, we need more and more of Jesus in our life, especially in lockdown. Has Jesus changed everything for you? Jesus can change everything for you today. If you're exploring Christ, can I encourage you, pick up a Bible, read Mark's Gospel to start with. It's a short one, it's fast-paced, it gets you straight to Jesus in chapter 8, in the middle of that Gospel account, and ask the question, Jesus asks you the question, who do you say I am? And even if you belong to Christ... Jesus continues to change everything. It's what we call reforming church. We are reforming daily, reforming weekly. It's why Paul didn't stop at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, but he keeps writing so we'd see the beautiful blessing of being changed, of always reforming by the gospel of Christ. Now, you might have a realization right now that you're not seeing that kind of change in your life. That sees you more like Christ. You're not seeing that kind of change. Uh, Perhaps you're receiving this word even today in affliction, in hardship, in frustration. Perhaps you've got sorrow. Maybe you're even a believer and you find yourself kind of stuck under the burden of idols. Can you see change? Can you have more of Christ in your life? Yes, that's where you'll find it. Because it can't be, I've tried this, I've tried that. The question is not what did you try. The question is not how much willpower did you have to change. That won't work beyond Wednesday. Here's what you need to do. You need to gaze at God. You need to look to Christ in his word. And the power of God does the work by turning you towards God all the more. The more and more you go to Christ in his word, the more you hear the gospel preached to your heart, the more of Jesus you get in your life, the more power of Christ to change. And Jesus is so powerful, he is not limited by lockdowns. Jesus can change everything for you, even during lockdown. Let's pray. Let's pray, Will. Gracious God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks to you always for all of Reforming Church. Constantly mentioning, forming in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father, Reforming's work of faith, labour and love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that we would have more of what we need, more of who we need in our life, more of Jesus. We pray this for our Bible reading. We pray this for our sermon listening. We pray this for our small group studying. We pray this for our daily devotions 
for our family worship, for our discipleship of one another. We pray that your word would come to us in power and we pray that we would say and sing with thankfulness, all I have is Christ. Amen.